Well, let us return then to Amos chapter 7. We want to look at one or two verses from this chapter. We're not going to consider the whole chapter this evening. The title I'd like to give is Effectual Prayer. And as we come to this subject, I think we all have to hold our hands up and say, we need to know more of this, effectual prayer. The minister does, and I'm sure all of you can heartily agree with this, that we need to know more of it. And we can know more of it. The fervent, effectual prayer of a righteous man availeth much. And in these opening verses, we have Amos, who is engaged in prayer, and his prayers were effectual. Just one or two uh, background notes to help us. This, by one commentator, is regarded as the third and last part of Amos. He divides Amos into three sections, part one, from, verse, from chapter one to the end, to chapter three, verse eight. He considers that to be the first part of the book where we have the roar of the wrath and the coming judgment of God. And part two goes on from chapter three, verse nine, to chapter, 16, chapter six, verse 14, that we finished last week. And he has entitled that part of the book, The Enemy Begins to Encircle Around the Land. And the enemy, of course, is the Lord himself. The Lord is going to come around. Oh yes, he'll use the Assyrians, but it's the Lord that is behind the attack, and it's imminent. Now, chapter seven, what do we have? Or this, the, the beginning of the third part, from here to the end of chapter nine. The predicted blow falls. Judgment actually comes. Christianity, friends, is a religion of the book. We depend upon the Word of God. And as you will believe and know, that the words that we find in the Bible are important. The Bible is not verbose. It doesn't just use words to fill out a space. Words are very important. And Amos is a small book. He doesn't say an awful lot in great detail. He uses words, and we can expand them and get the meaning of them and of the terms. And very often he speaks in farming language because that's what he was. And that's what God does. When God takes a prophet from whatever calling or vocation that prophet came from, he uses the prophet's background to convey the message that God would have him convey. And as you know, Amos was a herdman, or he looked after sycamore trees. And therefore, he was very much an agricultural man. And this comes through in his prophecy, in his words. But as I said, he chooses his words very carefully. Let me give you one or two examples. Amos uses the phrase, the Lord God. 
He uses that phrase throughout his prophecy. He uses it 20 times, the Lord God, which could be easily translated sovereign Lord. He uses it 20 times. He uses it 11 times in the remaining three chapters. He's doing that for a reason. He is reminding the people that it is the sovereign Lord who is moving. It is their sovereign God who is acting. That's why he's using that words, that phrase, the Lord God. And when it's Lord, it's Lord with a capital L and the O and the R and the D are lower capitals. And that's the word Jehovah. That's their covenant keeping God. Once in every four or five verses in the last three chapters, he uses this phrase, the Lord God. What else? Only in these chapters, these remaining chapters, does Amos speak of Israel as my people. In other words, God's people. Only in these verses, in these chapters, from chapter 7 onwards to chapter 9, three chapters, he uses <coughs> this phrase, my people. God is communicating this message to the people. You are my people. What's he saying? Well, the sovereign Lord is going to correct and going to judge his people. That's the message that he wants to come over clearly, precisely, distinctly to them. It's the sovereign Lord. It's my people that he's going to move and work in amongst. It reminds us, friends, of Ecclesiastes. We might not be familiar with the book of Ecclesiastes, written by Solomon the preacher. But towards the end, when he's beginning to sum up in chapter 12, verse 10, this is what he says about the preacher. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words, and that which was written was upright, even words of truth. Solomon, who at that time was the wisest man in the world, when he went to write the scripture, he wanted to make sure he got the right word and the right words to be used on every occasion. And he took some pains about it because words are very important. Well, this is what's happening here. The sovereign Lord is repeated. My people is repeated in order that they might really understand this is no accident. This is not fate. This is not chance. This is not coincidence. This is the hand and the finger of God. It's the sovereign Lord who is bringing the judgment upon his people. Let's remind ourselves again. And we'll update the language. This is not against Iran or Iraq or Syria or Yemen. This is talking to the people of God, the church, the professing believers, as it was in the day of Amos. The Lord is speaking to his own dear people. Well, in chapter 7, Moses, uh, Moses Amos sees three visions from verses 1 to 9. He sees three visions. 
And the remaining verses from 10 to 17, which we shall look at later, he deals with opposition that he finds to his prophetic calling. And anyone who is involved in uh, the ministry at all will know something about opposition in the ministry. And as it happened on this occasion, it's from a professing believer. That's where you get most of your heartache. And that's exactly what happened to Amos. But we shall look at that on another day. We want to look basically at visions one and two that we find here at the beginning of the chapter. And we want to draw some lessons from them. And in order to do that, we really have to get a grasp and some kind of understanding of them. Vision one then is from verses one to three. And behold, this is the vision he showed, the Lord God showed unto me. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. This is difficult for us, but it's not actually once we maybe delve into it a wee bit. Grasshoppers is locusts. And these are devastating insects that will eat everything. After the first cutting of the grass, that first cutting of the grass or the crops could be regarded as a kind of income tax because that first cutting was given to the king. And after the first cutting had been secured, and it had been given to the king, there was a second cutting that would happen sometime afterwards. And that was for the farmers themselves, and they could use it to, as fodder to feed their animals, and also use it for themselves to survive. So there was two cuttings, two harvests, if you like. And the first one, because of a, an arrangement, it was regarded as some kind of poll tax or income tax, and it went to the king in order to provide for the king first. And then the second cutting, that would be for the individuals, the private people themselves, that they would be able to look after their own animals, and they would be able to provide for themselves as a result. Well, the first cutting would go away quite easily the king would get his first cutting. But after the second cutting, what was going to happen? The locusts were going to come and destroy it so that there would be no harvest for the ordinary farmer, for the manual laborer, for the man who depended upon these things. He was going to go into dire straits. That's the judgment that was going to fall upon them. That's the vision that Amos saw, that God revealed unto Amos a terrible famine, a terrible death that was going to happen to them. Vision 2, verses 4 to 6. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. What's all this about? Well, we're inclined to believe that this is a drought, a great heat from the sun. 
and it would dry up all the water. And as you know, what would happen? There would be a tremendous drought. And if there's drought, then there's problems and there's difficulties. And that's what this one, this other vision that Amos saw, that God revealed to the prophet, he saw it, and as a result of that, he interceded. And that's really what we want to look at tonight. It's the response of Amos, because God in his mercy revealed this to Amos. These two things, these two visions, these two judgments that God was going to send upon his people, God revealed them to Amos, and Amos, as a result of what he saw, he immediately began to intercede. The brother mentioned there about, in the prayer, about sending forth laborers into the harvest field, and it's something that I've prayed for myself. Because the Bible says, Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he send out laborers into the harvest field. And we would think about that as being a prayer to send out preachers. And there's a great need for preachers. But if I understand what Jesus said to us, before you're going to get preachers, you need to get intercessors because Jesus says pray and who are going to pray it is the intercessors and surely this is what Amos is, is demonstrating to us here God in his mercy revealed what he was going to do and Amos he then began to intercede and that's the way it should be friends we all want preachers. There's congregations that don't have a minister, and we can see a need for preachers. Well, before you're going to get preachers, you need to get intercessors to pray that the Lord of the harvest would indeed provide for his harvest field. So he began to intercede. Does this not tell us something about Amos himself? We've been through this book, and... Uh, Basically, this book is nothing but a book of judgment. It does, end, it does end on a positive note, and we'll come to that. But it's all about judgment. First of all, it was judgment to the enemies of Israel around about them. But then, that was just a preliminary uh, episode. But then after that, he homes in on the people of God itself. And he's telling them about the terrible judgment that's going to come upon them. Now, we might think as we go through this book here, we might say to ourselves, well, this guy, Amos, he's nothing but a hellfire and damnation preacher. He couldn't care less about people. He's, he loves to preach about judgment. He loves to tell the people about their sins and the need to repent. This is all that he's about. That's what we might think. And that's what we might think about the gospel preachers today who seek to preach the word of God. You might say to yourself, well, that's all he talks about. It's about judgment. It's about death. It's about hell. It's about heaven. But here is poor Amos. What happens to him? He sees what's going to happen to his people. And he begins to intercede. He's got a pastor's heart. 
Oh yes, he's got a difficult message to convey and he's not going to shrink from it. But he's been obedient to the word of God and to his commission and to his call. He was at his farm. He was doing the work that he came to do. And God calls him from that and puts a message in his heart that he's to go to Israel. He lives in Judah. He's got to leave his homeland, leave everything behind. And he's got to go to, in some sense, a foreign land and declare a very unpleasant message to those who are up to their necks in apathy and indifference and a couldn't care less attitude. But he begins to intercede for them. He's no cold-hearted prophet who delights in proclaiming the judgment and the condemnation of God that's going to fall upon them. He cares for them and he intercedes for them. Well, that's the way it should be for every gospel preacher, but we're not all gospel preachers here, are we? But this kind of principle and this kind of attitude should be in every single one of us. If we're Christians, friends, have we not ourselves tasted that the Lord is good? Do we not know something of the Lord's goodness? And can we go through our lives and can we see people on that broad road leading to destruction, many of them moments away from hell? Can we not in some sense be somewhat concerned about them? And can we not intercede for them? Amos did. This is what should characterize our lives. If we know the grace of God, then we should be like Amos, not cold-hearted, not, well, you can take it or leave it. Is there not any passion? Even more than passion, you can have passion, but what about compassion? This is what Amos had. He didn't want to see these things happen. Well, he interceded. But notice too, he recognizes that sin is the problem. These visions that we have tried to explain to you, people would just say, well, that's natural causes. That's what happens. That's fate, that's chance, that's just mother nature, that's just the natural world. They don't see anything more in it than that. And that's very often what happens when terrible things happen in, in the world today. Well, it's just mother nature. It's just one of these things. It's global warming or it's climate, climate change or whatever. Not so for Amos, no. He recognizes it's all because of sin. Why do we say this? Well, each time, for instance, I'm just quoting from verse 2, but he said, O Lord God, forgive. There, he's, to, he's recognizing that the people have sinned. He's recognizing that this has come upon them because of their sins. We would be wise when we hear about things like this, and we will hear about things like this, and we do hear about things like this. Earthquakes, tsunamis, floods, 
drought, whatever. People lose their lives in a moment. Why, they might be in a dance hall and they might be drinking away and they might be reveling away and enjoying their lives as far as they can see. But what happens? The roof collapses on them. What a fire destroys them. Or they're trampled on the way out of the discotheque or the dance hall. There's a crush. Well, when these things happen, friends, what is to be our attitude? How are we to look upon these things? Oh, that's just fate. That's just bad luck. No. As Jesus said when he was challenged or confronted by people who referred to disasters that happened, we went through it in Luke's Gospel, in Luke chapter 13. Have you heard about this? Have you heard about the sudden death here? Did you hear about these people who were trapped and they died? What do we take about these things? Jesus says, Nay, but except ye repent, you shall all likewise perish. That's how we're to look upon these things that many people will say are natural disasters. When fairies collapse and sink and many are drowned, oh, it's just a natural disaster. Couldn't be avoided. Well, maybe it couldn't be avoided, but except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. Do we recognize that sin is the problem in our society today? What happened in the Scottish Parliament this week? What happened? Well, there was someone who came, a lady. She had the title of reverend, but she was a pagan. And she gave uh, an address, time for thought type of thing, three or four or five minute address. A load of nonsense, of course. In some sense, I'm sure that the Lord would be laughing at that. But in another sense, no. Because it's absolute rebellion. It's foolishness. To have that kind of activity in government. And remember, government has been appointed by God. It's an institution of God and it should honor God. And when these things happen, when these clowns come forward and they try to tell us how to live our lives without Christ, without the Bible, without God, it is deeply offensive. And it speaks volumes of the, the terrible state that our land is in when we, we can tolerate such nonsense. Now the Lord might laugh at our foolishness, but on the other hand, friends, he will not be pleased. And here's the real problem. This is how far we have fallen. Sin is the problem, and it has affected the whole of society. And sin is not static. 
It hardens the heart. What was once tolerated or was not tolerated is now tolerated. What's changed? What's changed is the heart of man has got harder and harder and harder. And maybe it is judicial hardening. What does that mean? It just simply means that God is withdrawing his grace and his influence upon society so that we are getting harder and harder. Well, sin is the real problem. And Amos recognized it, and we must recognize it. And friends, the more that we recognize this, the more that we'll intercede, the more that we'll become like Elijah. The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. In his prayer too, he noticed the seriousness of the situation. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. That's what he says on both occasions. Verse 2 and verse 5. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. You know, this man had his ear to the ground. This man, his feet were really on the ground. I don't mean that he was rooted and grounded into the world, but he was aware of the world that was around about him. He wasn't living in some fairyland. Why do I say that? I say that, friends, because the people themselves, the people that he was ministering to, thought they were great. They thought they were mighty. They thought they were prosperous. They thought everything was hunky-dory. With all their religion, with all their services, with all their shrines, with all their worship, with all their religion, with all their wealth, things were going well in the country at this particular time. They were relatively well off. At least some of them were. And those people who were really well off were trodding down the poor. But generally speaking, their bellies were full, their bank balances were full, everything was fine. But what does Amos say? What does he say? I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. Is this not the way with our nation today? Is this not the way with the church today? Our nation thinks it's a great nation. Our nation thinks that we can change the world. Our nation thinks that people over in the Middle East are listening to us. Well, our nation, if it doesn't change, and the church, if it doesn't change, will know exactly our true state. What does Isaiah say? Isaiah chapter 60, verse 12. A wonderful verse to memorize. Isaiah 60, 12. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish. Yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. Great Britain, you were once great in the sight of the world. Great Britain, you're going down the plug hole. Why? Because you'll not serve the living God. Scotland, yes, you were once a nation that was regarded a nation of the book. 
That's long gone. Long gone. You're now listening to pagans. You're now listening to witches. You're now listening to the darkness, the devil himself. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve thee shall perish, yea, those nations shall be utterly wasted. This nation at that particular time thought they were hunky-dory. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. It's good to come to prayer and recognize how small we are. This is another thing, friends, that will fire the heart up. This is another thing that will stir us up. If we go to prayer and we think we're mighty and we're powerful, will not our prayers be somewhat powerless? But oh, if we go as intercessors, as we go as ones who recognize that we cannot change the world ourselves, but we call upon a God who can, will this not give some potency to our prayers when we recognize our, our weakness? So it was with Amos. He knew the true situation. And therefore he prayed accordingly. True prayer. And friends, we're at a prayer meeting. Surely this is what we must learn. That we are powerless. But our God is not. And do you notice what he says in his prayer? Do you notice, friends, this is a real effectual prayer. He pleads for forgiveness. Is that not what he says? Forgive, verse 2 there. O oh Lord God, forgive, forgive, forgive. That's what he says. He asks for pardon first before the removal of the locusts. And he pleads cease. Because this is the greatest need that this people needed and our people need. And maybe there's people here in our midst. It is to know the forgiveness. It is to know peace with God. That's what he, he wanted for them. Not that the locusts would go, yes. Once they had peace, then the locusts would go. Well, effectual prayer. And friends, it truly was effectual prayer. The Lord repented for this. I'm not going to develop this, but my time is up. But I do want to finish with an encouragement here. There is a, there is a tension. It runs through the Bible. There is a tension between prayer and the will of God. God is sovereign. God has, as we say it often, God has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And your prayers cannot change what God has ordained. My prayers cannot change what God has ordained. Yet we are encouraged and instructed to pray. Let me give you an illustration of what I'm trying to get at. You'll be well, well familiar with Zacharias and his wife Elizabeth. They prayed for a long time that they might have a son. And I would say a son because they were childless. 
and a couple in Israel or in Judah, they would pray for a son first. Because, because a son would look after them in their old age. Well, they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and they were godly and they, were, they feared God, but God never answered their prayer as they thought. They then went on and became old, as everyone does. And because Zacharias was too old to sire a child, and Elizabeth was too old to bear a child, they stopped praying for a family. They would have accepted this is God's will. It was done and dusted. They would have accepted it as being God's will. Let's go back a few hundred years. What happens a few hundred years ago? Isaiah, how many years? Six, seven, eight hundred years before Christ. He prophesies of someone who is going to come, who's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. You'll find it in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. We know that to be John the Baptist. Micah, 400 years before the coming of Christ. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. We know from the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ that Elijah the prophet there mentioned is John the Baptist. He was the Elijah that was prophesied in Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. 400 years before Christ and 300 years after Amos. Let's link all these things together. John the Baptist was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. The angel Gabriel came along and said to Zacharias, Fear not, Zacharias, for thy prayer is heard. Not prophecy has been fulfilled, but thy prayer is heard. What was his prayer? His prayer was that he would have a son. He didn't think it was ever going to happen. But there, when he was serving his role as a priest, Gabriel comes along and says to him, Thy prayer is heard, and thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son, and thou shalt call his name John. What is my point? My point is, hundreds of years ago, God said that the forerunner of Christ would come The forerunner of Christ came and Zacharias prayed for a son. Zacharias' prayer fulfilled what God had decreed. There's a very clear and simple example for us. 
We are to continue to intercede because there is no telling how our intercession can, if you like, we'll use this in a human understanding, how it can be matched by the decree of God. But that's how God works. He uses the prayers of his people to fulfill his purposes that have been set and foreordained in eternity. It's through the prayers of his people. That's what happened here. This poor couple were just praying for a child, a son, to look after them in their old age. They didn't realize that God had put that in his decree and that in the fullness of time, like Christ himself, he would come. He would come. Their prayer was answered because it was in the decree of God and it would be fulfilled at its appointed time. There is a mystery, friends, between prayer and the will of God, but we have a warrant to pray and to cast all our cares and concerns before God, knowing that he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. And glorious things happen when we pray according to God's will, as Zacharias and his dear wife found there, John the Baptist, proclaiming the Christ, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. You might be praying for a prodigal. You might be praying for someone in your family. You might be praying for someone else outside the family. That person might be converted. And that person might have a wonderful influence on other people. That person could be a preacher, or that person could be another intercessor. And friends, you have no idea what can happen. Only God. Therefore, let us be ones who uh, adopt the attitude and the actions of Amos. Let us be engaged in prayer, effectual prayer, because as our book tells us, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much.